Hey, everybody, it's Kai. And it's Kimberly. This is Make Me Smart. Thank you so much for joining us. Instead of our usual Tuesday show today, we wanted to share some really spectacular work from another Marketplace podcast that we kind of knew this crowd would like. It's called How We Survive. It's a show about the real ways we're adapting to and trying to survive climate change. This new season of How We Survive is hosted by Amy Scott, one of our favorite fill-in hosts for this show. Amy usually covers housing for Marketplace, and so fittingly, this season looks at the ways one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country, Miami, is trying to deal with the climate crisis and rising sea levels. So here you go. Here's episode one of the newest season of How We Survive. Is this one of the more beautiful places you've had Marketplace send you? Yeah, I would say this is one of the more uh, glamorous professional assignments I've had. (laughs) It's June, and I'm in Miami with my producer, Caitlin, reporting on climate change and the housing market here. So naturally, I had to at least check out the beach, you know, for research. Do I have beach hair? Yeah, you do. You do. (laughs) I've spent more than 20 years reporting on the economy, how it works and why it doesn't work for so many people. For the last several years, I've focused on housing because, in case you haven't noticed, it's been a little nuts lately, especially in Miami, where prices have been rising faster than almost anywhere else in the country. And of course, everyone wants to live on the water. So when I saw some builders working on a beachfront property, I had to talk to them. Yeah, will you show us what you're building? Right here. Tell us about it. It's got um, a school that we put in the ocean. Three kids are digging a big hole, building these little mounds and decorating them with found objects. And what else? A can? And um, seashells. And these? It's a water park. How fun. So what happens if a wave comes up and knocks it down? Um, we'll build it again. Yeah. Will you be sad if it gets knocked down? Yeah. But like you said, you can build it again. Build it higher and stronger? Yeah. Let's juice this metaphor. <laughs> totally. Till the very end. <laughs> Just like these kids, Miami is in build mode. The construction cranes are everywhere in the city. But below the surface, there's trouble brewing. As our planet heats up, rising seas are coming for Miami. There could be not just two or three feet by the end of the century, but six or more feet. I don't see every community making it. We have maybe 20, 30 good years left. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty scary. With 6 million people in the metro area living at an average of just 6 feet above sea level, Miami's been called the most vulnerable coastal city in the world. Sea level rise will cause death, displacement, and economic devastation. And yet, if you talk to real estate agents here, it's like, sea level rise? What sea level rise? Do your clients ever ask you about that? No. Sea level rise is not something that has been brought up much during the pandemic. Not a single question. It's just not the driving conversation. They don't care. They just want to be on the water. And I get it. It's beautiful. It's sexy. Until there is a storm. (laughs) 
I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive, a podcast for Marketplace where we're following the money to the end of the world. In this case, South Florida. This season, we're finding out how we're going to survive rising sea levels because it's not just Miami that's in trouble. And how the city responds will serve as a test case for how other places around the country survive the effects of climate change. This is episode one, Selling Miami. Florida's economy is powered by real estate, and people have flocked here during the pandemic, drawn by the weather, the lax approach to COVID, and the low taxes. Florida has no income tax. Local governments depend on revenue from property taxes, and that's a precarious situation when billions of dollars in property is at risk from rising seas, flooding, and hurricanes. The climate crisis is playing out now in South Florida. It's not some distant future. So in this episode, we're asking, if Miami is doomed, why isn't the housing market acting like it? And what happens when the water comes? To successfully sell real estate in Miami, it helps to embody the glamour and glitz of the homes you're showcasing. And no one does it better than Dina Goldentayer. She's an agent with Douglas Elliman who specializes in ultra-luxury properties, anything above $10 million. I'm Dina Goldentayer, step inside This is a clip from Dina's YouTube channel. Images of oceanfront estates and sky-high condos flash on the screen, along with their multi-million dollar price tags. She did more than $750 million in deals last year. With her long, bleach-blonde hair and frequent outfit changes, Dina looks like she just strutted off the runway and into a Miami Beach penthouse. At one point, she's walking down a hallway with sleek black tiling, mouthing the word hot. Nice to meet you. In real life, Dina carries herself with the same authority and flair. Come on in. Welcome. This is Thank you. I'm at her office in South Beach, a block from the ocean. She offers me a comfy chair while she shoes her staff away. All right, everybody, phones on silence and, and don't come out because that door scrapes. So stay, stay in your beautiful glass cages. Don't worry, the cages are just offices with big windows. Okay, let's see. Dina pulls up her laptop so we can browse some of the listings on her website. So at the very top end of my current listings um, is a home on Indian Creek Village, which is known as America's Billionaire Bunker. It's home to people like Tom and Giselle, uh, Ivanka and Jared, Carl Icahn. Um, It's probably the most exclusive community in the country. Yeah, no big deal. Dina sells waterfront property. So you might think she and her clients would be wary of the encroaching seas. Not far from where we're sitting, a tide gauge at Virginia Key has measured six inches of sea level rise in the last 25 years. Experts are predicting at least a foot more in the next 25 or so. Do your clients ask about, you know, is this building safe? Is it going to be underwater in 30 years? It's just not the driving conversation. I'm not sure exactly, but I definitely think that the timing of the issue does seem far off, uh, whereas people are thinking about things more 
closer in time, like my kids are graduating school, I'm going to be an empty nester, or I'm selling my company for half a billion and I would like to have Florida residency, you know, while I certainly don't want to downplay it, it's just not a question that I'm posed often. After talking with Dina, I toured a handful of coastal properties and heard the same thing over and over again from other agents. People really want to live here, and I can see why. This view at night is just phenomenal, just absolutely gorgeous. The weather is, like, amazing. You walk out into your backyard, and that is a private beach. For me, the water is cathartic. I think it's the best asset any city can have. That asset can also be a huge liability. Rising seas bring higher storm surge along the coast. So-called sunny day flooding during high tides is getting more common. Because Miami is built on porous limestone, the water doesn't just crash over seawalls. It seeps up from underground. And when stormwater has nowhere to go, even inland areas flood. It's a big problem. First Street Foundation, a nonprofit climate research group, says that 60% of properties in Miami are at risk of being severely affected by flooding in the next 30 years. And you can look up any address in the country on their website. It's called Risk Factor. So I thought I'd do some coastal property comparison shopping. Aha, uh-huh. okay. And I knew just the right person to join me, my producer Haley who loves real estate reality TV. This is a very sophisticated website. Oh, my gosh. First, we scroll through some of Dina's listings. Oh, you know, this property is described as a compound. You don't happen to watch Selling Sunset, do you? (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, in one season that, uh, I think the line was like, millionaires get mansions, billionaires get compounds. (laughs) We check out a more modest $30 million concrete and glass house perched right on Biscayne Bay, and then type the address into risk factor. Oh, my God. Okay. Guess what the percentage likelihood of flood water reaching this building in 30 years is? I think there is an 88% chance. Not bad. Really? It's 99 <laughs> 99% chance of flood water reaching this building in 30 years. Um, wow, that's really sad. We go back and forth on properties for a while. Basically, every listing we look at has a 99% chance of flooding in 30 years. Okay, $35 million this sold. Miami Beach, Florida. Okay, okay, let's make this harder. What do you think in five years? What's the percentage? Oh, gosh. Um, 80%? 70. 70? Yeah, not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to take those odds. But there are plenty of people who are willing to take the gamble. When did you move here? Six weeks ago. This is Lisa Reeves. I met her on the 44th floor of a high-rise in downtown Miami. The one-bedroom condo she's renting is about to go on the market for $850,000. Oh, wow, look at that bathtub. Lisa graciously lets me look around with a real estate agent. It's a beautiful place with high ceilings and big windows with views of Biscayne Bay. My favorite part was the giant black-and-white portrait of a lion hanging over the bed. 
When I was there, Lisa was on her laptop in all-black athleisure with black platform slippers. She works remotely for Microsoft. What brought you here? No state income tax <laughs> to be candid because I came from New York. I was there 27 years, and it was time for a change, and the taxes in New York are extremely high. Again, Florida has no income tax. It's one of the big draws for a lot of people. But Lisa also couldn't justify buying a house while the market was this hot. I'm not going to buy now because it's, I feel like I'm buying at the top of the market. So I want to wait a year and see if things level off a little bit, although I'm not sure a year's going to be long enough. What about sea level rise? You know, Miami is obviously right on the water and... People are predicting... Okay, so I'm in my 50s. So for me, I'm not that concerned about it. I'd be concerned if I left it for my daughter, for example. Uh, It's a slow thing, you know, that's progressing, I think. Um, It's a big concern over time. But I'll be gone by the time it probably impacts... it, It would impact me. I don't think it will. So given all the investment, I mean, you see the cranes everywhere, these buildings getting built... It seems like generally people aren't that worried. (laughs) I don't know if it's too far in the future for their mindset or they think it's going to get fixed. I don't know. I I think it's, I do not think it is a worry short term to most people. I've been steeped in climate news and research for months. And the threats coming for Miami and for the rest of us eventually feel very real and terrifying to me. So to hear multiple people say, eh, it left me with a lot of questions. Like, what the f*** is going on? Does that surprise you? No, that's exactly what we found. That's exactly what we found. That's Risa Palm. She's an urban studies professor at Georgia State University. A couple years ago, she and her team surveyed almost 700 real estate agents in South Florida about how sea level rise was affecting the market. And just like all the agents I talked to, they said it really wasn't. Now, there's some psychology happening here. Risa says humans have a tendency to prioritize information that suits us and reject that which does not. If you've always dreamed of living on the waterfront, it's not really convenient to start thinking about your investment washing away. It's called motivated reasoning, something Risa says is especially potent among real estate agents in Miami who are in the business of selling real estate, after all, not talking people out of buying it. Their profession is to list and sell houses. We can't expect them to be geography teachers, no. I should point out here that Miami builds with flooding and hurricanes in mind. Florida has some of the strictest building codes in the country. New homes have to be built stronger, and if they're in a flood zone, higher. It's common for the ground floor of these new homes to be considered uninsurable space because it's designed to be flooded. I mean, it's not even a question of if it'll happen. But Risa says the vast majority of houses were built before these codes were written. And even the most resilient house is not a great place to be if your street's underwater and your community's been torn apart by a hurricane. Still, when she showed coastal homeowners maps of their neighborhoods and what flooding could actually look like in the coming years, even then, they didn't really flinch. What's the disconnect there? 
First of all, I, I think people are optimistic that people in Florida have had every reason to be optimistic because uh, they've heard, and it's true, that the housing market has been very hot, that people who try to sell houses are getting multiple offers, they're getting offers over the price that they're asking, and so they're able to sell their houses. So they have no reason to believe that just because somebody comes up with some sort of map, that, that that's going to have any kind of impact on, on them personally. Okay, the housing market has been hot. But what about in the coming decades when flooding is worse? Isn't homeownership supposed to be a long-term investment? The most popular mortgage, after all, is a 30-year loan. But Risa says the reality is that most people don't stay in a house for 30 years. Typically, it's more like eight years. The time frame is just not a, a 20-year, 30-year time frame. People are not thinking in those terms. And in a way, who can blame them? There's a whole system that enables people to keep living and building in flood zones, from subsidized flood insurance and government-backed mortgages to local zoning rules. And when you look at the highest end of the market, those ultra-luxury houses on the beach? A lot of people can simply throw their money away because they can afford to. Jesse Keenan is an associate professor of real estate at Tulane University. He used to live in Miami and comes from a long line of Floridians. And maybe, like me, you're asking yourself, okay, so what if wealthy people want to keep living on the coast? Even if they lose their house or have to put up with regular flooding, they can afford it. But Jesse says it's not just their problem. It has impacts for all of us and all of the people in Miami and South Florida because you have to pay for the infrastructure uh, to support those properties. And that infrastructure is increasingly becoming very, very expensive. Infrastructure like pumping stations, sewer systems that corrode in saltwater, roads that get washed out and have to be elevated. Then there's the rising cost of disaster relief. When the worst happens and a hurricane or big flood hits, taxpayers end up footing a lot of the bill. The federal government spent more than $110 billion on aid after Hurricane Katrina. Nearly 40% of the U.S. population lives near the coast. And when we keep building and investing in housing that's increasingly in harm's way, we all end up paying for it. Jesse says the market isn't totally ignoring climate change, though. In 2018, he and some colleagues published a paper looking at the relationship between home prices and elevation in Miami-Dade County, going back to 1972. The lower the elevation, generally speaking, the higher the risk of flooding. And our theory was that the properties at the lowest elevation would simply not perform as well. Uh, didn't necessarily mean that they would go down in value, but they would be, the market would begin to discount the risk of flooding. They were right. What we saw is around the year 2000, the lowest elevation properties began to underperform all other properties. And over time, that signal became more and more robust. In other words, properties in riskier areas aren't appreciating as quickly as properties in less risky areas. And other research shows sales have fallen in parts of coastal Florida that are more vulnerable to sea level rise. So slowly but surely, we're getting more robust information uh, and data that suggests that consumers are beginning 
to be more aware and make decisions accordingly. Jesse thinks the market has peaked and home prices eventually will fall across South Florida. Not just because of climate change, mortgage rates have spiked in the months I've been reporting. And a lot of homeowners are starting to ponder what feels like an inevitable question. When do I sell? I think the better question is, when do I buy? And my answer is never. Yikes. Noted. So far, I've been in Miami tourist mode. The beach, the fancy homes. I didn't even tell you about the welcome Bellini at the hotel. I admit it. I got sucked in. And I kind of get why, if you have the means to live in paradise for as long as it lasts, maybe it makes perfect sense to be here. But the majority of people in Miami don't have this luxury. More than 60% of the population is considered poor or working poor. And for a lot of people, climate change isn't some distant threat. It's already here. If these walls could talk, they would have a very, um, very horrific story to tell. A glimpse behind the glamour shot after the break. A few weeks after my first trip to Miami, the city got its first big storm of the summer. South Florida drying out after a day of downpours. That tropical disturbance bringing so much rain, even a foot of flooding in some areas yesterday. Leaving cars and drivers stranded in knee-deep water. This is past my knees, and I'm not a short person. Some of the worst flooding happened downtown, right where I'd met Lisa Reeves, the woman who had just moved to Miami from New York and wasn't that worried about sea level rise in the near future. So I called her up to check in. You know, I did a pretty good job of staying indoors for the most part. However, I did venture out at one point and there were, it was massively flooded. Cars were literally, com- the, the water was completely up to the window, which is obviously extremely dangerous. There were a couple of cars floating and I saw almost every shopkeeper had sandbags in front of their storefronts, but the sandbags did not hold up. So did you think about our conversation? I mean, we had just been talking about climate change and... It did pass through my mind. And I think when I, um, when we had the conversation, I wasn't overly concerned. I think as years go by, things are going to get worse and worse. So it does make me more concerned than I was, let's put it that way. Does it make you think any differently about buying a property in Miami or where you might want to buy one? It certainly does from a, a very specific local location. I wouldn't want to be right on the beach anymore. Lisa had something else on her mind. Champlain Towers South. Remember, that's the beachfront condo building that collapsed last year in the nearby town of Surfside. It killed 98 people. The investigation into what caused the collapse is ongoing. Research suggests sea level rise might have played a role in deteriorating the foundation of the building. Salt water is corrosive and can weaken steel and other building materials. Now, wading through nearly knee-deep water to get to the grocery store, it all felt way more real to Lisa. I've not been here three months yet, so hopefully this is a sign of um, a lot of storms to come. But they are predicting, if I'm hearing it correctly on the news, 
10 storms between now and the end of hurricane season, potentially 10. So that sounds quite high to me. That's concerning. Do you think going through that 10 times or something like that would make you reconsider living in Miami? I wouldn't want to live in this year round. Let's put it that way. Most people in Miami do live here year-round. Just a few miles inland from Lisa and the high-rises of downtown is Little River, a neighborhood named for the canal that runs along its northern edge. It's a working-class, mostly Black and Latinx community. And that's by design. The city's history of redlining and segregation forced people of color to live away from the coast. The area used to be agricultural land, but now modest houses and apartment buildings line the streets. And while the first storm of the season might have burst Lisa's bubble a bit, for people in Little River, that bubble burst a long time ago. Every hard rain uh, brings some flooding. A few weeks after that storm, I met Day Smith. Day is a nickname, which we're using because she's a first responder and is worried about her privacy. She lives in a low-lying part of Little River, just a block from the canal. So this is your street right out front? Yeah. As you can see, it looks like you could row a boat down it, maybe a canoe. She's showing me pictures and videos she took of the damage from the latest storm. This time, the water didn't stop at the front step. It seeped into the house and rose several inches. This is my daughter's room. So she's basically pushing the water with a broom. This is not what she envisioned back in 2006, when she first saw the little white house with its terracotta roof and lush front yard. I remember the beauty of the backdrop of the house and the uh, tall foxtail palm trees that towered behind the home. It's just a 1,000 square feet with two bedrooms and one bathroom, but it was affordable. And back then, all she saw was possibility. I was saying to myself, wow, and it's this close to the beach, and it's this close to downtown, and it's this close to the highway. This is like a little piece of gold. I think I can turn this little tiny cottage into something comfortable. So she put down an offer, signed the papers, and moved in. My mother never owned a home. And so for me, this was a major accomplishment to buy this home and to to call it mine. But little did I know what I was going to experience. Miami-Dade County, where Day lives, requires sellers to disclose whether the home is in a flood zone, so she should have received that form when she signed all the papers. Plus, to qualify for a mortgage, she had to buy flood insurance. I knew what flooding was, but I had no idea that it was going to be this severe. If she had known, she says she never would have bought the house. During one hurricane, her next-door neighbor lost his dog in the flood. And the neighbor two doors down? She was up to her neck in water. Um, And at that time, uh, there was no way that she could have called for help. So she just had to uh, basically hold on and wait it out. 
Plus, years of consistent water damage is contributing to serious health issues for a lot of the community. The lady across the street, uh, as it is, cannot walk around her house without a mask on simply because the mold and mildew is too much. Standing water, breeding mosquitoes and mud, is a regular nuisance. We have a daycare right down the street here on the same block. And they have been unable to allow the children to play outside on a regular basis because of the puddles that, that stay settled for days and the water that does not drain properly. County officials are aware of the problems in Little River. Miami-Dade's Office of Resilience has designated the community as an adaptation action area. It's working with residents to develop plans to improve drainage, replace failing septic systems, and elevate roads and buildings. But Day would like them to move faster. The whole thing's turned her into an advocate for her community. She's been interviewing her neighbors and researching housing solutions on her own like retaining walls and rain gardens. She even made a PowerPoint of her suggestions to share with the resilience office. So you presented this to the county, and what did they say? They were really pleasantly surprised. They were very open, very receptive to uh, my ideas. And uh, they even asked if they could save the PowerPoint. For now, they told her they're looking into possible solutions and funding. We're not asking for a million-dollar home, but what we would like is to have a safe and decent home on higher ground and to be able to allow our kids to go out into the backyards and play, to be able to flush our toilets and take showers, nice, long, long, hot showers, and to be able to enjoy our homes uh, just like anyone uh, else who might be on a, a, a bigger tax bracket than us. But Day also knows she can't wait forever. Do you ever think about leaving? I have thought about leaving. The situation has been frustrating. But in this economy... Where exactly would I go? Remember the crazy housing market? She says she'd probably have to look far away to find a decent place that she could afford. And I don't know if that exists anymore. So that's one of the uh, one of the biggest reasons why um, why I haven't left. Um, the other reason is because I have hope. When I think about Miami, I'm reminded of those 3D postcards and refrigerator magnets you see in souvenir shops. You know, the shimmery ones where the picture changes if you tilt it slightly? Maybe the shark opens its mouth or the city skyline shifts from day to night? Miami's kind of like that. There's the glamorous Miami, the luxury waterfront condos and sparkling beaches and nightlife a place where the wealthy can throw money away on houses that will be underwater in a few decades. But change the angle and you'll see the not-so-glamorous side, where lower-income people face an increasingly dire future. Something Jesse Keenan at Tulane said stuck with me. 
when I asked him why the housing market is booming in a city that's doomed. I think it's an overstatement to say that Miami is doomed. I think it's a better way to think about the future of Miami is that it's just going to be a very different place for a very different population. Miami is one of the most grossly unequal places in all of America. The wealthy are extremely wealthy and the poor are extremely poor. The costs of climate change are enormous in a city like Miami. And people will no longer be able to afford to live there. There won't be enough land. There won't be enough housing. It'll be too expensive. And the population will decline. The city will change uh, and it will never be um, the city as we know it today. Miami is going to change. That much we know. But we also know that people are going to keep living here. So how do we make it as livable as possible? We are a living laboratory for climate change. We're facing this now. That's what this season is all about. Water will find a way. you got to figure out a way to live with it. From living with the water to defending against it. We are building strong and effective and keeping Mother Nature out. We went on the hunt for solutions. And over the next few months, I'm taking you with me. All right, we're about to go pythoning, right? Let's go python. There's a snake, there's a snake. Into some buildings that seem to defy gravity. All of our homes are raised. Everybody always says our homes float. To a lab where they destroy houses on purpose. And then, oh, there goes the air compressor. What a fun job, just hurling stuff at a wall. And even a thousand feet up in the air. Oh yeah, I'm starting to feel a little woozy. All right. How are you doing, Caitlin? Good. Did I mention I'm afraid of heights? (laughs) All that and more coming up on How We Survive. The team and I would really love to hear from you if you have questions about any of this, what's happening in Florida, what you wonder about sea level rise, or maybe you want me and Haley to look up your house's flood risk. Whatever it is, send it our way. We're going to devote a whole episode to you all later in the season. You can email us at survive at marketplace.org. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Haley Hirschman produced this episode with production help from Grace Rubin and Olivia Zhao. Caitlin Esch is our senior producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design by Chris Julin and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Catherine Winter, Peter Ballinon Rosen, Janet Wynn, and Marquet Green, and to the other real estate agents we heard from Melva Garcia, Nathan Zeter, and Maya Vander. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand, Francesca Levy is the executive director, and Neil Scarborough is the general manager of Marketplace. 